Welcome to this podcast for Classical 91.5. I'm Julia Figueres. The Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra is beginning a new season, and they're beginning with a bang. It's four contemporary pieces, and it includes a new take on a very old tale. Violinist Leela Josefowitz is back in town after a long sabbatical from Rochester. And, of course, we have the RPO Music Director Ward Steer in our studio as well with Leela. Welcome to both of you. Nice to have you here, Ward. Great to see you, Julia. And Leela, it's been too long. <laughs> Thank you. It, well. it, it really has. And, and what you're playing this time is very different from what you were playing last time, but we will talk that about sure. it. That is for sure. So this uh, entire program of music is music of our time. It's tied to the Fringe Festival. And so, Ward, what was your like, overall vision as you went in to create the program for the Fringe Festival? Well, um, first of all, we wanted something that would match kind of the spirit of the Fringe Festival. And um, so it, it was... Uh, exciting to think that maybe we could have a concert for the first time ever, by the way, on the Phil's series um, that has music of all living composers. I mean, the oldest piece on this program was composed in the mid-80s. I mean, that's it's just incredible. Um, and every single piece is different, uh, outside the box, kind of uh, from what you might expect on a normal Philharmonics series concert, especially the opening week. Um, but that was exactly what we intended for this this program. Uh, so we're very excited. We're hoping that people who are fans of the Fringe Festival will uh, will join us in Kodak Hall, and uh, maybe we'll get a lot of first timers to hear the orchestra. And boy, I'll tell you, you will hear this orchestra on this program because they are getting a workout like you wouldn't believe. Uh, each piece is very different, uh, not only in its style but in the the forces that are employed and, and the composition, the compositional techniques themselves. Uh, two of the four pieces use electronics, which is something that you don't see every day. Um, and uh, of course, the whole second half is is this just incredible work, Scheherazade Point Two with Leela, which I know we'll talk about in a moment. Um, but that was really a, an absolute perfect way to end this concert of all new or newer music. Um, because it helps us launch our uh, season where we're going to focus uh, on Susan B. Anthony's legacy and the celebration of the 100th uh, anniversary of the 19th Amendment, 200th anniversary of Susan B. Anthony. Um, and y as you know, we're featuring a lot of um, works that are by female composers, but also you know themes that sort of uh, celebrate the empowered woman. And I can't think of a better piece than Scheherazade Point Two to sort of, you know, sort of, you know, present that and launch this this incredible season that we we'll have. Get so there. We'll so it, get it you there. know, it all came together really well and I, I'm thrilled. I think this it, I love this program. It's one of my favorite uh, openers that we've ever done, I think. And Lily, you're a very big uh, advocate for music of our time. In fact you live it. You don't even play older composers anymore, do you? I think the oldest piece I play would be Stravinsky, mm. um, nineteen thirty one. So why why did you make that decision? Um, I think that it was um, it was it was a decision eventually, um, and actually it, it was kind of in full fruition. The decision, I mean, um, probably by the last time I played here, um, which um, was Beethoven. Um, but I think you know this is this was in the works for many many years. I mean, I had had a really wonderful training. Um, really, I'm proud to say, I mean, just the best training. Um, I went to Curtis. Um, all of my teachers were pretty much um, over 80. Um, <laughs> and I consider myself lucky. I was one of the 
you know, probably the end of a certain generation of players who could experience um, sort of that old world style um, of playing the kind of the um, the technical ways in which people used to play and the mental kind of ways they used to think about music. Um, but this um, also propelled me away from it in a certain way. Um, Felix Galmier um, was one of my teachers at Curtis who um, was um, knew Alban Berg, um, premiered the Lyric Suite, and um, he and I and a couple of other players were uh, lucky enough to perform the Lyric Suite with him at Marlboro. I studied Berg Violin Concerto with him, um, a lot of other 20th century music with him, and he was the one that really spoke to me um, in that he helped me to, I think, um, based on my earlier training from other great teachers, kind of understand that this was sort of my kind of favorite language, um, not necessarily most tonal language or kind of classical language, um, but more um, something just more, um, I don't want to use the word dissonant because it's not really accurate, but mm-hmm. um, more unexpected, more edgy, more um, contemporary, and I use the word contemporary in, in, the, in the sense of living today. Um, it made me want to understand more about music today. Um, and that excited me. I felt surrounded um, in my teens when I was performing with a lot of colleagues who were perfectly happy, it seemed, to play the standard works. And I was right there, too, um, playing standard works. And I kind of wanted to do something different. Um, I just felt like, why are we all in this sort of hamster wheel of the same repertoire? (laughs) Why are we following in others' footsteps? Why isn't someone feeling more fire to do something really, truly unexpected and different, um, to go against the grain of what people always expect to hear and give them something that they're not expecting to hear? Um, and that was always sort of um, the direction I was going, and now I'm just kind of continuing to go now in that direction. You're living the <laughs> life for now. <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot of pushback, of resistance to music of our time. Um, you know, people um, don't necessarily buy tickets for it. People are looking for things that aren't that on a typical average day. So. How do you sell this? How do you say this is good? Why is it important? Where do you start? Well, that's a very complicated question to answer, but um, to try to boil it down, I would say a few things. Number one, um, the more you can do to dispel any preconceived notions that the public may have that all contemporary music is nails on a chalkboard and, you know, cats and you know all these like awful screechy you know (laughs) things and and, you know no tunes that you can follow no beat or groove I mean all of that I I think unfortunately and I'm gonna maybe be a little offensive to some people who you know love the sort of middle period of the 20th century but there was this like really kind of thorny period in contemporary music where composers were really kind of just composing for themselves and unfortunately people 
sort of caught onto that and said, well, I'm not interested in that because I can't relate to it. But that has changed. The pendulum has swung. And I'm really glad that that happened because, you know, a composer like John Adams, I mean, he still does all these, you know, amazing new things. But it's I want names, man. And so oh, who's, who's, who's thorny? <laughs> I want to know who's oh, thorny. Oh, I, uh, I don't know. Arnold Schoenberg? Milton Babbitt. You know, people Milton like Babbitt. that. I mean, I don't yeah. know. Actually, yeah. Elliot actually, Carter. I mean, he, his Pierre, music Pierre, is... Pierre Blues actually said he, Blues, didn't, he I mean, didn't even care if didn't anybody care. came. Yeah. He actually said this. I don't care if anybody comes. I don't, well, I don't write music that, for know, anybody. I actually have something to say about that. Is that I have a lot of... Um, I have some many best friends um who adore that Mm -hmm. period um and this is i think part of the answer to your question is that you know music is not one language it's like many languages um and each composer this is the way i think of it at least each composer is like a different language um so if you were to you know hear anything um you know, name any language. If you were to hear Estonian for the first time, you wouldn't understand it. But if you were to study it and you were to hear it more often, you'd start to pick it up. And that's the case with, you know, all of these composers had their own sound and they kind of had a cult following of people <laughs> yeah, um, that's true. that got to love that sound. Um, now, I mean, if you expect to hear um, all kind of tonal chords, sure, you know, this is not something that you're going to feel comfortable with. But if you're willing to kind of think outside of this familial comfort zone and think, hey, like, maybe this is not not understandable. Maybe this is not not understandable. Maybe this is just (laughs) a different thing than I'm used to. So um, so what this means is that people are very used to, and this is one of the reasons why I changed directions with what I was doing, was that people were so used to comparative listening. They were so used to what they were used to. And I didn't feel comfortable in that environment. Um, I never felt like I was totally at home or comfortable playing Beethoven. I just didn't. Okay, devil's advocate here, though, Leela. Here, when you have a concert setting, um, people don't have time necessarily to read the book, to study to study it. So somebody's going to come in and sit down in in his or her seat, right, and get something put in their lap. And how do you get somebody who doesn't know that language to at least start to grasp that language Correct. I mean, if it's the this first is, hearing. This is a great question, and it's you know a question that gets asked often. I mean, you want to go first? Well, uh, yeah, I was going to say, I yeah. mean, I think part of it um, is framing it for the audience, and, and I was starting to say, you know, kind of dispelling the preconceived notions that people have that there's no chance that they will either A, understand it, B, enjoy it, see you know remember even a bar of the music because all three of those things are false um but i think the more we can do to sort of expose people for it to increase their um comfort level but also you know have them have a little bit more of an open mind um that's the key because i mean when you see an orchestra on stage i don't care what they're doing you see you know 75 people on stage making music together at the same time there's this amazing energy and if you add a soloist into the mix i mean it's just like incredible just to watch 
And so if you go in with an open mind and you really listen, I think it can be quite stimulating. Dude, here's, the, here's the rub on that. And let's talk about Rapture by Patrick Harlan, which I heard you play, the RPO play. Mm-hmm. And then I heard it again mm-hmm. when you did the taping. Mm-hmm. And then the CD arrived. Mm-hmm. And by the third hearing of that, mm-hmm. when I programmed it for my show, I love that piece. But I did not have a handle on that at but all there's, in there's, the first uh, hearing. We don't expect you to, though. And you know what? I dare to say that the first time Beethoven's violin concerto was played, not everybody understood it there either. He had, you know, he's got a couple hundred years on Patrick Harlan. So, I mean, <laughs> you know, people have to... And the other thing is the world is different now. Back in Beethoven's day, uh, if someone wanted to hear music, they either had to go see a live performance or someone in the house had to play the piano or an instrument. So there was more of a, a fluency in the general population uh, in cities, you know, for music. So I think it was easier to speak the language, like Leela was saying, you know. Well, there were just so many fewer options back then. Mm -hmm. I mean, in terms of entertainment at all, that was just at your, you know, at your beck and call. Um, But, you know, back to your question, um, I think that somehow people with classical music have come to feel that they have to understand um, everything that's going on. What what they hear, they feel that they have to understand it, and if they don't, um, then it's hard for them to enjoy it. I mean, let's just say, if you go to a modern art museum um, and you stand in front of some insane painting, um, this is one of the big differences, and I think one of the challenges that we face with classical music. If someone doesn't like a painting in a museum, they just turn and walk to you the walk next painting. It. Right, right. Um, with the classical music world, just the etiquette of what you know we've brought ourselves into in terms of just having it be an, a live art form. One sits quietly and is there for the entirety of the performance and then goes. So there is a commitment um, <laughs> that's demanded of the listener, whether they like this piece or not. I'm not a naive player in that I know that not everyone's going to love what I do. Um, and I have to be okay with that. <laughs> I mean, what I can do, though, is to say I have studied, I know this language so well that I hope um, that I can have at least some aspects of it be um, intriguing or interesting or um exciting or some kind of positive attribute um for you so that you can walk away saying hey like maybe i didn't get every moment of that but that was cool and different or you know i didn't like this part but i like that part a lot or you know that was damn interesting the you know that sound i just heard i've never heard this before um Mm -hmm. on stage in 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 a in a concert hall Um, And this is what we need because we're so used to having what we're used to having. And um, if you think of all the other art forms out there now, sure, we have Shakespeare and we have also modern plays. But imagine if all of those modern plays were cut back, you know, 80 percent and you had still mostly Shakespeare. Um, That's sort of what we're trying to change is that, you know, the the. The vibrant new world of what's being created is pretty amazing right now, and it needs to be heard. Um, 
this is what we're living now, um, not only 300, 200 years back. So is it like watching a Robert Altman film? You have to just sit down and let it go <laughs> and let it wash over you and catch it as it comes? I mean, just, you know, yeah, don't don't try. Don't be overwhelmed. Let Leave your mind open, I think, and just find what you latch onto in the music and go with that, and it'll lead you to some pretty cool places. All right, so let's talk about the cool places that we're going to go for the next concert, um, this concert coming in. We begin with Mothership by Mason Bates. This is a, a very cool piece of music. Um, it has a very interesting mix of solos that pop out with it, and the idea is, if I understand right, that each of these solos will dock with <laughs> the Mothership and, That's right. and leave it. So um, in the video that I saw, the YouTube video, uh, YouTube Symphony with Michael Tilson Thomas, there was a synthesizer, an electric guitar, a Gujang, a, and a Chapman stick. <laughs> uh, so what have you got docking with the RPO? Well, we have, um, there's an option to have two or four soloists, so we have opted for the two soloist option. So our first um, docking sequence takes place between uh, the mothership and Herb Smith, our third trumpet player, who's a great jazz player, also loves to improvise, so he'll be improvising on stage. Um, and the second one is Bob Snyder, um, fantastic guitar player, so he'll be docking for docking sequence number two. Are, are you going to be using throughout it a synthesizer throughout it as well? Well, it's not a synthesizer per se. It's, um, it's like a, a DJ kind of track and it's controlled from a laptop now there are two ways to do it if you have uh if mason had been able to come mason bates he can actually play it live with a dj's pad and everything and like really do it which is cool but uh obviously he can't be everywhere that this piece is performed it's actually quite popular it's done all over the place which is great um so there's a laptop track that has it's very well organized and the player uh just has to sit back there and press the, click click the mouse or the trackpad at the right time, and then we're golden. That, that the laptop track comes that, with, the, with the music? That's right. That's, you, it yep. comes with its own download. Mm -hmm. yep. So um, this is an interesting piece. Uh, how would you describe it? Well, it, it's, I mean, it's fun. It's, um, it's fun. so the concept um, behind the mothership is that, you know, if we were to be visited by such a craft, you know, and we had to communicate, well, wouldn't it be great if music was the way we could communicate? We always say it's the universal language, right? And beyond that, um, specifically rhythm. So it's very rhythmical. And um, what Mason Bates uh, really thought would be cool is to focus on like a kind of modern dance, you know, techno kind of kind of kind of beat to get that festive energy going on. Um, so you definitely hear that. You feel like you're walking into a nightclub, you know, at, at moments during the piece. Um, and there, there are all these um, little signals thrown out from the mothership. And then you can hear, you really hear the call and response before the uh, improvisations start uh, on each piece. And then the orchestra jumps back in and it all comes together, driven by this techno beat um, to, to take us home, you know. Do you, do you have a disco ball? Uh, sadly, we're just going to have to stand for the chandelier, but it's a pretty cool chandelier. I'm very sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very sorry. I was hoping for a disco yeah. ball. Uh, then after that comes uh, Einstein's Maybe group. Eastman would let us replace you know, the, the chandelier with, with a, a disco, disco ball. ball. You think just for this week? I don't know. We'll have to ask him. The world's, <laughs> the world's biggest disco ball. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. awesome. We could all wear our, our platform shoes. <laughs> 
this would be a good thing. So right after Mothership by <coughs> Jason Bates comes Cindy McTee's Einstein's Dream. And this is, um, as, 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 as I heard it, this really felt like a meditation. Mm-hmm. It's much, it's kind of, I'd say it's completely different in character from the Bates. Um, but the only thing they have in common is they both use uh, electronics. So uh, those are the two pieces of the four that involve electronics. But with Cindy's piece, um, it's not, uh, the player does not have to constantly cue the track at the right time. It starts at the beginning, and then I actually coordinate the music to the track as it happens. Um, and it's in several different parts, and, and it's a cool concept because Cindy uses um, all these different techniques where, like, there's one voice sampling where she took a recording of someone speaking words, but then she, like, sort of sliced and diced it through the computer so it's not recognizable as speech but it's like granulated speech patterns that sort of come in and out mixed with um like swooshing sounds uh, metallic glissandi and all sorts of artificial and intentionally so sounds which are mixed in with orchestral colors that range from the playing of a Bach chorale all the way up to very modern techniques of you know ponticello and you know all sorts of extended playing techniques for the strings. And so her idea was to blend the very old with the sort of uh, more distant, uh, more near past, and then look to the future. So it's like this idea, Einstein's, that all things are relative and that time is flexible. And, you know, there, there are all these different um, subtitles to sections. Like one is the frantic dance of subatomic particles, which is, wow. it's very cool because um, Cindy, uh, staggers all the entrances of the strings and she actually tells us that you do not have to be together but if it's executed the the right way you get the sense that you're actually watching these particles dance around and try to meet or collide and it's it's very much connected to all the things that Einstein was working on and thinking about um, with the underlying um, idea that Einstein loved music and he always said as I'm sure you know that he thought best you know when he had some time with Mozart or when he had time to play his violin which he admitted he wasn't great at but he really found it to be sort of a a conduit to opening his mind so that he could think about all these amazing concepts and so Cindy really plays with with time and with the concept of relativity and uh, Einstein's uh, personal affinity for music. The the Bach chorale that she quotes, she's transposed into E for Einstein. And at the very end <coughs> of the piece, there are these really long, slow glissandos for the strings. And so you almost feel like, it's like, um, what is that uh, that sound, that audio company that used to have that intro in the movie theater where we go, it's oh, like um, sort of coming in. Is it not a mirror? Ma- um, I don't know. One of those things. You'll know what I'm talking about. I know exactly yeah, what you're yeah, talking yeah. about. So you kind of get that. Like It's almost <laughs> like the, the orchestra is melting for a second, and then it all comes together, but everyone slides uh, down to down or up to an E at the end, and then it all resolves on E for Einstein. So it's very cool. Where did you find this piece? I've known about it for a while. It's the first time I've actually conducted it, but um, I think Cindy's a great composer. I've known her for a number of years, too. So um, I just thought with this program it was absolutely the perfect choice the the, uh, the third piece that we'll talk about i said i think is the oldest of the pieces yes on that's the right. program actually and that's the i mean it's just old hat it's <laughs> really, so 80s mm-hmm. uh, steve reich <laughs> three three <laughs> movements for orchestra um and this is when i hear it, it it's funny because when i hear this and and i sat in in a in a row and i listened to mothership einstein's dream and 
the Reich three movements right in a row. Hmm. And it, it, it almost sounded, I hate to say it, it almost sounded retro as I was listening retro. to Retro? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you're uh, very astute because it's the oldest piece. And, you know, Steve Reich really laid the groundwork for a lot of composers that came after him. I mean, I think he influenced John in some ways, too, for sure. Of course, sure. definitely. Um, mm-hmm. So, and, and actually he didn't, this was, um, I mean, he wrote, I'm trying to think, in the 80s, like there were a couple pieces for orchestra, but he was really he sort of stayed away from orchestra for a while, and then took another long break. I mean, he's mostly a chamber music percussion composer, so we're lucky to have uh, the few pieces for full orchestra that that he's written thus far. And this is one of the one of the great ones, I think. And it again um, is totally different from the first two pieces, but it will. Uh, there's a big stage change, by the way, also that the audience should be prepared for because. He's playing with all this phase shifting, uh, which is a concept that he kind of pioneered where we actually have the orchestra essentially split. So we have two mini orchestras on stage that are acting kind of as like left and right speakers, but um, they don't really play together. They crossfade. There are all these moments where the left side of the stage crescendos as the right side of the stage diminuendos. And so you get this really cool effect that's almost like if you were sitting in a sound studio in a booth playing with the dials, you know, and um, if it's, again, it, it requires actually an incredible amount of concentration from the musicians. It it doesn't look, if you looked at one part um, alone, it doesn't look like much because there's repetition, absolutely, um, and there are all these, you know, you do the same passage, I don't know, hundred times or That's more. The hard, it's and the hardest, actually. Yeah, it's, <laughs> the but, repetition, I mean, oh. I have a, an, another story after you're done about that kind of thing, but it's well, very hard to... No, please, I mean, yeah, it's... Well, jump in. Jump in, well, yeah. Well, I no, mean, even <laughs> like, you know, Shaker Loops yeah. um, by John Adams is, um, I think, one of his greatest earlier pieces, um, and it involves a, a smaller group, um, but x number of bars whether it be 20 or 25 or sometimes only 10 or you know um constantly shifting by just maybe even one or two notes or by a rest um but golly i mean if you are in the middle of playing a certain amount of bars you know you have to do it 20 22 times and you're you're on you know the 15th time and you stop and you say wait a second, was this number 15 or was this number 16? Right. Um, And then it's sort of like what John said, which is so funny, is like, you know, just concentrate like like the Dickens because it's sort of like you're on a highway and once you take the wrong exit, you just can't get back (laughs) on. Yeah. Um, So it's kind of like that. Um, When you don't have that kind of repetition, everything has its like normal sort of ebb and flow and kind of shape to it. Um, but when things are mutating slowly over kind of longer periods of time and, you know, for the ear, it's really interesting because you hear and you feel these subtle shifts that all of a sudden, kind of before you've even sort of registered the change, you know the change is actually already happening. Mm-hmm. Um, that's an interesting concept. The first movement, for example, um, where that the crescendo diminuendo I was talking about happens, like just like Leela said, there's like one little thing that changes, but it, it's not immediately apparent. And so, but if you sit back and just let it 
kind of happen and again just relax it's kind of like lying out in a field watching clouds go by you know they just kind of it's it's a gentle phase shifting but you know it, it's very interesting but it happens slowly you know uh, but it's also very beautiful very precise and the three movements are through composed so that uh, when we finish the first one we go directly into the second movement which is much smaller uh, in character and it's um, a simple canon um, meaning the melody is just played sort of in quick succession on top of uh, itself um, with accompaniment by the vibes and the vibes have a really interesting um, technique that they do where they actually dampen every few notes so you get this you know all these little stops it kind of is like a, a pulse going on underneath uh, while this melody is spun by the violins and the oboes and then after we do that for a while all of a sudden the melody kind of evaporates and we're left only with the accompaniment so the accompaniment becomes the main event and then that uh, develops harmonically for a little while and then all of a sudden another element where the third movement starts is introduced which sort of picks up the pace but actually the pulse has been the same you don't realize it but movement one two and three are all the same pulse it's just different meters and different divisions of the same beat so when the third movement starts it feels like twice as fast almost or so it goes from all of a sudden you hear and then we're really off to the races for the whole third movement um, and and there's a lot of back and forth you get the stereo effect again uh, he adds electric bass at the end which is nice. pretty pretty hip pretty cool um, sort of like uh, you know connects up a little bit with the DJ and the the baits you know for the end of the first half and it ends with a tremendous amount of energy the orchestra just builds and builds and builds and more layers more layers harmonically it goes up uh, very slowly um, until it's finished and then their fingers all fall off yeah and they take a break. And then there's a nice, really light second half for everybody. <laughs> right. And then they take a break. And then they come back. <clears throat> and they come back to a piece that um, I heard you describe as ferocious. You heard me describe it. Yeah, you, were, you, you used the word ferocious when talking about this. Uh, Leela, John Adams seems to be a real go-to composer. You've toured with him. I've you, known him for 22 years. How would that um, relationship begin? Well, um, well, it's always easy for me to remember when I met him because I was pregnant with my first son. Um, and it was just, you know, you always remember the first meetings of, you know, with people that mean a lot to you in your life. And um, he then came a few months later for me to hear me perform with Seattle Symphony, um, his first violin concerto. Um, and I was very excited that he was there and was kind of starstruck and John Adams came to hear me and it was all exciting and everything and we had a nice chat and he was really happy um, and I didn't really know him then I just I knew more about him and I knew his his music much more than I knew him as a man um, but anyways that first concert and then it was kind of an astounding thing because um, I would say within two weeks after that performance, um, I was booked in to play that piece with him um, in, I think, four cities in the following year with him conducting. And for me, um, that's exciting news kind of for anyone, I would think. So you didn't know? I mean, you've got a call from your agent saying, oh, by the way, Leela, John's conducting you? Um, so my manager would say, well, this is amazing because John has asked you 
to do the violin concerto with him in um, London, Paris, um, blah, blah, blah. Um, and it's, of course, a direct result of him hearing me in Seattle. So, um, but for me, as I was saying earlier, having this training of learning all these classic pieces for so many years and having sort of this distance between who knows really these great composers' minds to, wow, I get to work with a living, breathing creator. And not only do I get to do that, but I get to have dinner with him afterwards. And then we get to go, then we get to go to the museum and, you know, and then we have a rehearsal and then we have a concert and we have many of those. So, you know, that's what we've done for 20 years. How do Joan's pieces come to you? Does he hand you the entire thing and say, this is it? Well, John, I mean, <laughs> John's really, um, he's just a, such a good, solid friend. It's not that we speak every week, but it's just someone that, you know, you have years and years of experience with. Um, and he knows the way I think. He knows the way I play. He knows how I work. He knows kind of um, what gets me going. Um, he knows kind of the way my weird mind works. Um, and we just, we have a ball together. We just have a great, great time together. So he knows, one of the things he knows is that prep for me is, um, goes along with sort of my, um, um, the way I want to present new music, um, especially in what we were talking about earlier, which is, you know, people, um, have to sit and listen um, and hopefully understand some of what they're hearing. And that's where my job comes in, that if I give only a half-assed performance, the chances of them really understanding this is a hell of a lot less. But if I come in with the same dedication as I would to Beethoven Violin Concerto and know all the parts of the orchestra and know who's doing what when, and, and I respond as we all should be doing in earlier music. If I use the exact same mentality for earlier, the way you, you put the same integrity into studying earlier music into the newer music, then that brings out the beauty and the, and the intricacy and the details of what the composer wants. So, so anyways, so John gave me this score um, a year in advance and I used, obviously I was doing other concerts at that during that year, but I used that entire year um, to study. So it was my new language. <laughs> um, if you were to think of, okay, um, I want to learn, um, you know, a whole new language. I have to be able to give a big speech in that language in a year. Mm -hmm. So this is what my goal is. So you start from the baby, baby, baby steps. Um, what does this piece look like? How long is it? How many movements is it? What um, are, what is the basic structure of each movement? What does each movement say about the other movements? How do these movements all combine to form this big piece? Or maybe it's not a big piece, maybe it's only 10 minutes, but you go from sort of the macro into the micro um, and it takes time. So the great composers who know that they want their pieces done absolutely in the in the best possible performance um, they give you the time that you need how on earth can anyone expect 
the best performance when they have only a week to prepare. <laughs> it's just, it's not fair actually to anyone. It's not fair to the audience. It's not fair to the poor performer who's sweating bullets. It's not fair to the composer who won't get the best performance. Um, so I, I beg um, in advance, this is, <laughs> I, don't, I don't really beg. I'm, luckily I haven't um, needed to uh, really beg, but I'm sure the day will come at some point that I will have to beg or I will Say have no. to pr postpone. Yeah. So, um, so, but I will not. I I give everyone my word that I will not give a half-ass performance. Do you ever uh, say, John, this isn't cutting it with me? I'd like to change this. Can we do something with this section, or is it in rock? <laughs> I would say um, I don't ever say um, it kind of like that. But I would say <laughs> um, so. If I'm saying something that you don't agree with, forget I ever said it, but I'm getting the feeling that this, whatever it is, this is kind of what you're wanting in this section. Am I correct about that? If I am, then perhaps if I was to do boobity bop instead of bibbity bop, you know, <laughs> this might actually speak better from a violinist's point of view. So, and if you think what I'm saying is a not a good idea forget I ever said anything but I have that way of working with composers and most of the time um, I don't think I've ever had a composer that didn't have an open mind to it now of course then if the score comes too late then you can't make those sort of fine tunes to it and you just have to work with what you have um, some composers do not want input um, I have not really yet worked with a composer um, that wants no input um, but there's also the other mentality of the composer actually and this is different than um, sort of the older mental musical mentality which oh you know doesn't work just change it we, um, we actually had a composer do you remember when we were doing an interview and I said you know do you make changes and he said no but I, well, I the composer, right. yeah. you know, the idea is that the composer actually really knows what they're doing. And, you know, the composers I know sweat over every single note. Mm. Um, and if they're open to changing, that's because they're open to changing. <laughs> I'm not forcing anyone to change anything. So, I mean, it's a different process with everyone. Did you, re um, did you premiere... Scheherazade point two? I did. Okay, so what is that like? What is that like? It's an important piece. You know it's an important piece. Um, and, and it's an important composer. You know it's an important composer. So what is that like to unveil a new piece, to be the first, to be the, the well, touchstone? Well, in, um, in the case of Scheherazade too, it was kind of excruciating um, from a number of points of view. Um, first of all, um, it was Lincoln Center and Avery Fisher Hall. So it was definitely not kind of this place where you kind of felt like you were sort of warming up to it. It was like one of the most important venues in the world, like right, the, right off the bat. Um, and the other kind of, I can laugh about it now, but we actually never got through the piece start to finish um, in any of the rehearsals. <laughs> okay, because it was wow. it was so it was truly uncharted territory for all of us in that 
you know, the scope of the piece was so big. Um, and it's like a big, it's like a big Bruckner or a Mahler symphony. I mean, it's like, there's so many details. Um, and Warren and I have talked about this a lot, but, um, just to get the feeling of the entire thing. So you can imagine what this was like, um, you know, the first performance, it was just, um, as life sometimes is one foot in front of the other, um, and just live in each moment and don't look forward and do not look back just stay in the moment mm -hmm. um and amazing what happens because when you stay in the moment all of a sudden you're at the end mm -hmm. of the piece um and if you don't stay in the moment the chances of a mistake are far greater because you're not concentrating in that moment um you gotta stay and i think especially with this piece um because of the sort of the art the, the 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 journey of this and and the the emotional um you know upheavals in this you have to kind of stay in each moment talk uh, talk to me about these upheavals uh ward the uh the structure of Scheherazade too well to um expand on what Leela just said i mean it it really is Mahlerian, wagnerian in scale i mean it's it's an enormous piece it's by the way it is not a violin concerto anyone who thinks oh great i'm going to see a violin concerto they're really in for a shock uh, it's a dramatic symphony really and john has said that himself many times uh, it's a dramatic work in four parts that follows a, a pretty clearly defined narrative uh, about the protagonist of Scheherazade, which we can talk about more in a second um, but throughout the entire course of the piece, um, I've actually felt a lot, uh, I mean, you know, maybe you don't know, but I conduct a lot of opera. So I felt a lot in moments like I'm conducting opera, which of course I love because we as the orchestra, we support Leela, yes, but a lot of times we are characters acting in this drama with Leela and almost always uh, in the really big moments against her, you know, so we have to bring this incredible energy that she can feed off of and then we feed off her energy which is just it, it's an incredible experience for us but there are some really quiet moments that have to be like scary quiet because you have to create the suspense the calm before the storm you know the right before the explosion the silence you know it's just it, it, it's really incredible but you have to think about the dramatic pacing in addition to just the actual you know the tempos which are critical every little moment you know how you have to make, turn a corner and you have to know where you're headed, you know, the conductor anyway, uh, has to be not always just in the moment. You have to yeah. sort of think about the future That's too, really true. because I have to be thinking, okay, we're building this moment. We're starting to build here is going to really, you know, explode and, f and fully form in this moment. So I know that we're, we're headed in that direction. Um, and so I'm always trying to sort of keep my, keep my uh, bearings in the overall structure, which, I mean, it's a 50-minute piece, so it's a big work. Is Lila, Lila, are you the voice of Scheherazade, just like yeah. Rimsky Korsakoff? I mean, this is really, um, <laughs> and it, it's it's sort of based loosely on the idea, I mean, when John got the uh, this idea, he was at an, an exhibition um, in Paris um, that focused on Scheherazade, on the, on the tale of Scheherazade, and how actually totally brutal this is um, that women were used for one night and then they were executed and it was just how it was and this one woman had 
enough savvy gumption to save her own life um, and sort of not only do that, but become his favorite um, and just to change him. And that, I mean, that's an amazing feat unto itself, but it, it brought um, him this idea that, hey, like, this would be a really cool thing to do, like write a modern version mm-hmm. of this idea. And he very proudly proclaims that I did this before the Me Too <laughs> movement. Um, and it is kind of amazing because... The timing is pretty incredible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's kind of prophetic in, yeah. <laughs> in that he can, um, he can really understand the um, provocative and um, the very heated world issues, um, and he can write about them. Silly question, maybe, but should a man play that part? Well, he's kind of laughed about that. I don't know. I don't know if a man can. I, I mean, I think that, yes, you know, we are in this new generation of, um, you know, just very, very, very fluid sexuality. I mean, if not now, when? Um, sure. Um, I don't, I'm not even sure another woman, though, has taken this on yeah, I, was say, I don't <laughs> even know if anybody else period could play this besides um, Leela. <laughs> but you have to um it becomes it's a it's something that is very um it's a personal it's a very um a personal experience for me this whole work um and john knows me well and knows sort of different aspects of different things that have happened to me in my life um as a woman not just as a violin player. Um, and he knew that I would really resonate with this. Um, and he knows that I'm a fighter um, at the end of the day, um, that I'm a nice girl. I am. I'm, I'm nice. But I also will get out um, my karate outfit, um, you know. And you have to fight. I mean, this piece is about courage and standing up and being brave. Um, and holding your ground and having and feeling your identity. Um, and I think as a player, whether no matter what sexual orientation you are, whatever age you are, whoever you are, um, if you don't have that sort of personality, it would be very hard for you to kind of put yourself into this character of, um, of Scheherazade. How's the orchestra doing? They're doing very well. Great. We, I have to say. They're doing great. Yeah. I'm, I'm proud. Everyone came excited for the week. I mean, everybody knew, um, you know, that this is a really challenging work ahead of time. So I was really pleased at the first rehearsal that people were prepared. And so we, uh, we spent a lot of time. I mean, it didn't come together, you know, like a piece of cake because it's a difficult piece. But uh, people are really invested and um Today we had two and a half hours with Leela, and I think we started to really some really good things were happening. So absolutely excited about it. We're, and you know, talking about managing rehearsals um, correctly and understanding what it takes to rehearse the piece well is also very helpful. And, and we have done, I think, a very good job of that mm. today. So yeah. How do you Ward? Um, I mean, Leela had a whole year. She got a whole year to work on that. <laughs> How do you get ready to work on a show where there are a concert where there are four new pieces, 
for pieces I don't believe the orchestra's ever played at all because it's not just four pieces of our, our time. It's for newbies mm-hmm. with the orchestra. How do you prep for that? Well, it's actually not unlike the process Leela described. I mean, I start kind of go from big to small, and I, especially with a piece... Um, now, I've conducted a fair amount of John's music, so I'm kind of familiar with his language a little bit, but this piece, you know, I think is a whole new level in many ways. So, um, you know, I've, I was really excited to do it. I said to Leela earlier today, just as an aside, that um, I was, I've been hoping that she would be able to come and be soloist uh, with me since I actually started here. She probably didn't know that, but I've asked <laughs> our artistic person to ask her manager what her schedule's like. Maestro crush. A- and it wasn't until, uh, well, you know, we, we met many years ago in St. Louis when I was resident conductor there, and she, she came, I think it was only one time that we were actually there at the same time, but, you know, she, she recorded Scheherazade with St. Louis, too. So, I mean, yeah. she's got a great relationship with that orchestra. And that's also where I first met John, by the way, oh, you know, because, yeah, when he would come to do some recordings with David, I would sit there with him and, you know, because I was the assistant, the resident conductor. So, I mean, this my whole um, relationship with John Adams language and when I really fell in love with his music was when I was in St. Louis. And so we sort of had that connection, even though we didn't really know each other at that time. Um, but going back to, to this week, um, you know, so I would ask, I would ask. And then when it came back finally that, oh, yeah, she she could do your opening week. And then I thought, ooh, you know, could I even ask for Scheherazade? And then she was able to do it, and I thought, oh, my God, this is so perfect. So I had, um, even though I hadn't sat down and actually started, you know, looking at the score under the microscope, you know, I sort of knew the piece. I heard it as soon as it came out, you know, and thought it was just amazing. So, you know, I was dying to get my hands on the score, and then I finally got my hands on the score. And, um, you know, I just, it's just about, I call it letting it marinate, you know. You sort of, you, you got to learn it. A little bit, then you got to put it down. Then you got to. This is how I am anyway. And yeah. Then, and then you you yeah. do a little bit, you put it down. Um, you know, and I I tried to spend a lot of extra time, not just in the in the atoms, but mostly in the atoms. But for all the pieces, like I would actually look at the string parts, for example, um, what the musicians are looking at, because when you get a piece that's traveled around and it's rental, sometimes there are weird markings that make their ways in and stuff. And and I knew that time would be really precious this week, so yeah. I wanted to make sure there wasn't something totally bizarre in their music, and so I asked the librarian if I could see all that ahead of time. So there's definitely some extra work that went into this week. Well, I mean, I, I just have to say how amazing um, Ward is this week in, in working with him, and the care that you're taking um, is special, um, and it's appreciated very much by me because I put that kind of care into things. This must feel um, like your child in many ways. It does. I mean, and, you know, there, I've had many different kinds of experiences over the years with this piece. Um, and I really, really appreciate when that great care is taken. And I'm happy and proud to say that this means that the audience will get one of the best performances of this. In the, um, little, in the little time that we have left, um, I was wondering if there are moments that um, we, as the audience, should be listening specifically for um, at, at points that we should be paying attention to as it happens. Well, I mean, there is, as Ward said, there's um, there's sort of a storyline, and, and and it's all up to the listener how they want to hear this, but this very brave, um, very... Um, sort of um, 
independent, strong-willed woman um, in an environment that's very, very um, much crushing um, women who want to stand out in any way. Um, and it's her journey of um, standing up to um, what John um, puts in quotations, the true believers, the, true believers, yeah. um, the men who, um, and it's very much about sexism. I mean, um, about the, the men who want women to stay um, in a very submissive um, place. Um, and her fight against that. And I mean, the basic, basic storyline of this is that she is put to trial and condemned to death. And this is an actual part of the music in the third movement, um, which I think is a pretty obvious moment. <laughs> it sounds like, um, you know, apocalyptic, like the the ceiling should fall um, that that dramatic. Um, and then it's up to the listener to you know decide in their own mind um, whether Scheherazade escapes um, and finds sanctuary, you know, on this on this earth or whether she is not actually on this earth anymore um, and sort of resurrects. Um, and there's no wrong interpretation. There's, there's no answer to this. Um, and I find that particularly appropriate um, in where we're at today um, and that we're in still a very complicated place um, in this subject matter. Um, and I think I, chances are it will always be complicated, um, but you know this this doesn't give you an a, an easy answer. The end of this piece, it's um, it's left sort of to each and every one's individual way of hearing. Do you have a personal answer? No. Or or, or does it does it change from performance to performance? No. Um, but basically, what my I think what's changed for me is that I. Um, I play the end in a way that makes it even more of a question. Um, that it's um, it's something that can't have an answer, um, and that it ha it feels final and yet totally not final at all. Um, it's it's hard to describe until you really hear it. Um, and and I think not to interrupt, but just to go on to that, like that's one of the really brilliant moments in this piece because he gives us this really specific unfolding of events, although they're open to interpretation along the way. And then after all that, he leaves us kind of hanging with this question, which I just think is brilliant. So on that right. artistic ambiguity, we will wrap up this conversation. I want to thank you both for coming in, Leela Josephowitz. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. And Ward, as always, I know I'll be seeing you a lot again. Yeah, uh, Ward Steer and it's always good. It's nice to have them here as uh, our guest, Ward Steer and Leela Josephowitz. And if you'd like more information about the Rochester Philharmonic season, you can go to rpo.org. I'm Julia Figueres, and this podcast is a production of WXXI Public Broadcasting. <laughs>